So uh, there was uh, this husband and wife, uh, good morning by the way, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, there were this husband and wife and they got into a really uh, heated argument and both got really angry and decided we're just not going to speak to each other anymore. And so for a couple of days this silent treatment went on and they both determined they were not going to be the ones to break the silence. Well, husband was getting ready for bed and he remembers, and I really need my wife to help make sure I get up in the morning because uh, I'm headed to Chicago on a flight and you know I'm afraid I'll miss the flight. But... He didn't want to break the silence, so he, he wrote her a note that said, Please wake me up at 5 a.m. He went to sleep. The next morning, he wakes up and looks over. It's 9 o'clock, and he thinks, My plane to Chicago is long gone. Why didn't my wife come in here and wake me up? He's just about to go find her and uh, kind of find out what's going on when he looks over and sees there's a piece of paper beside his bed. And he looks over and reads, It's 5 a.m., time to wake up. Well, it is. Uh, we are in week two of our series, uh, Staying in Love. And last week we kind of laid a foundation for how it is that we stay in love. Jesus taught and modeled for us that the way to stay in love, the way to love, is that it's not just a feeling. It, it's a verb. It's an action. It's something that you go and you do. And Jesus said, I don't want you to take your cue for how to love from culture or from your parents or from your in-laws or girlfriends. I want you to take your cue about how to love others for me. I want you to love others in the same way that I have loved you. And so Jesus modeled for us that the way to stay in love is to put love into action. It's something that you go and you do. Now, falling in love, that requires a pulse. Staying in love requires a plan, God's plan. Now, when we approach marriage, we uh, come into marriage, I think all of us, with some, some desires. We have some, some dreams. We have this picture of the way that, that marriage is going to work and the way that our marriage uh, is going to be. And so we kind of come with this, this box of desires. I think some of us uh, come with desires about certain ways that our house is going to look. This is a low-budget illustration, okay? So... Um, you know, a lot bigger than this, but we had this dream about the kind of house that we might live in. And, and I think we come into uh, the relationship having some desires or dreams about children maybe. You know, how many we're going to have and when we're going to have them, how long we're going to wait, when they'll come along. I, I think we uh, come into marriage with some uh, desires or dreams or a picture of who will play what roles. And, you know, there's certain things maybe that mom did and you so you go into marriage thinking, well, Ma, you know, my wife will do that too, or maybe not. Um, I think we come into marriage with some uh, desires or dreams about time. You know, maybe we think, oh, we'll spend all of our time together. You know, it'll just be the two of us. Or maybe you come into it thinking, you know, I'll do my thing and you'll do your thing. And uh, maybe you think, oh, we'll intertwine all of our friends together. Or maybe you think, you know, I don't even want you to meet my friends. Uh, but we have these expectations about time. Um, I, I think we come into a marriage with some uh, pictures about our finances, you know, how we'll handle our money. And we have these dreams of things that we'll accomplish financially together as husband and wife. And, and maybe you come into marriage with some expectations about sports in your house. You know, the husband thinks, well, everybody watches sports, you know, watches the football game on Saturday. But maybe the wife comes into the marriage thinking, no husband of mine is going to waste his Saturday watching sports. I don't know why you'd marry a woman like that, but um, just kidding. And then um, I, I think that husbands, we come into marriage with an expectation or desire about what our wife will not wear to bed. And wives come into marriage thinking that, well, they'll just love me for who I am. And they'll want me to be comfortable. 
They won't care about what I wear to bed at night. And so we come in with all of these desires and pictures and dreams about what marriage is supposed to look like. You know what the one thing all of these desires have in common? I. It's right there in the middle of the word desire. You know, it's all about I. I have my needs that need to be met. And I want it to look like this. And my image of the way marriage is supposed to go is like this. I, 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 I. But somewhere along all of this process, there is this change that takes place. You see, we, we sort of we walk down the aisle with our, our box of desires. And I don't know where it happens exactly, whether it happens right there at the altar or maybe it's during the honeymoon or, or six months later, but somewhere this change begins to take place and we begin to sort of transfer some of these dreams and, and all of our pictures about how time is supposed to go get transferred and, and our image about the house and the children and, and whose responsibilities will be what and, and how we'll dress and all of these things begin to get get transferred and there is this dramatic change that takes place and all of our desires suddenly become expectations. And when they become expectations, there is this dramatic change in the way the marriage relationship begins to work. And two eyes come colliding together and sometimes it results in battles. And sometimes the feelings begin to slip away. And so when this transfer happens, when they become expectations, I think there are three responses that most couples tend to pick between. The first response that many couples pick is to just simply depart, to give up, to leave. You're not meeting my expectations or I'm not living up to your expectations, so we'll just end the relationship. We'll go our own ways. We'll do our own thing. We'll end it. Now the problem with that is that the I still goes with you. And the box of desires goes with you too. Some couples decide that instead of that, they'll, they'll dominate. That one partner will be the winner. One par- partner is stronger, the other is weaker, and so the stronger partner basically says, these are my expectations and I'm going to make you live up to my expectation. And they dominate the weaker partner. Now on the surface sometimes, that looks like it works great. But just beneath the surface, the weaker partner is growing in bitterness and resentment. And eventually there will be some kind of explosion. Another way that couples choose to deal with these expectations is let's make a deal. You know, we'll kind of balance things out. We'll do 50-50 kind of thing. You can have your interest and I'll have my interest. And you can have your time and I'll have my time. And you can have your money and I'll have my money. And you can have your friends and I'll have my friends. And we sort of create this ledger, figurative ledger, that where we sort of try to keep everything balanced out. But you know what the problem with that is? That's not a loving relationship. That just becomes some kind of legal agreement. That's not staying in love. That's just coexisting. A healthy marriage isn't built just on the foundation of compromise. Now hear me. Obviously, in a healthy marriage relationship, a lot of compromise is required. It's important to learn how to compromise, but that can't be the foundation for the relationship. A healthy foundation for staying in love is committing that I'm all in. That I am 100% committed to my spouse. 
There's actually a fourth response that I think we ought to talk about this morning. It's the response that you find in the part of the Bible that I ask you to read leading up to this morning. I kind of gave it to you as homework last week, and I said I want you to read this every day. And in this part of the Bible, in Philippians chapter 2, there's a fourth way to respond to dealing with these expectations. So if you brought your Bible, why don't you take it out right now and open it up to Philippians, the second chapter. And we're going to look at these verses. I want you to see where these are because I want you to go back and read them again this week. And I want you to think about them through the lens that we're going to talk about this morning. Paul is the writer of these few verses and he writes what seems on the surface to be some very complex things. But I want to try to make them this morning as simple as possible. I also want you to understand, really, this is true about everything we've said last week and everything we'll say today. This is not just about marriage. Because maybe you're here and you're single and you're thinking, this does not apply to me. The principles that we're talking about actually do apply to every relationship. And uh, any relationship that you're involved in, these principles can work. But if you're here this morning and you're married, I want you to hear what Paul writes here and I want you to see that through the lens of your spouse in your marriage relationship. So here's what he writes. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, if we just stopped right there, and if we could just in our lives get down that part of what he says, we'd be miles down the road in our relationships, wouldn't we? He says, I want you to get rid of selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is the idea of competition. Paul says in your relationships, in your marriage relationship, there should not be any form of competition. Now this may uh, come as a great shock to you, but I am highly competitive. Everything can be a competition to me. Everything. Just about. So uh, we had our uh, staff over to our house for uh, Christmas uh, several weeks ago, and um, Peg and I decided we'd serve them dinner, you know, to treat them, and then uh, we had this brilliant idea. We played board games. That was a dumb idea. Really dumb idea. So uh, somebody brings along some stupid game. I have no idea what it's called. I never want to see it again. It's the most ridiculous game I've ever played in my life. So we get this game out, and they're explaining the rules, and at first I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure these rules really make, it sense. It's make sense. It's almost like you really can't win at this game. But we start playing and quickly I do realize these rules are ridiculous. Like you do the right thing and you still get penalized practically as you're guessing these words and passing this thing around. Anyway, it's just ridiculous. And so probably to many of their great shock, I make it really clear pretty forcefully, I am not playing by these rules. This is just absurd. I am not playing by these rules. Now they tried to hold me to it, but I tried to cheat as much as I possibly could. Because it's competition and I had to win. Now, how many of you would admit, not about that game, but how many of you would admit you're also highly competitive? Yeah, in fact, some of you tried to get your arm up first because you wanted to win the contest. Now, here's what Paul says. Paul says that kind of attitude cannot be part of our relationships. He says it to me. He says it to all of us. Competition in any form is not a part of healthy relationships. Don't try to prove that you're smarter. Don't try to prove that you're stronger and they're weaker. Don't point out things that make her look dumb. Don't point out that he forgot part of the story. Don't try to leverage situations to put yourself into the winner's circle. 
eliminate the winner's circle completely. It's not about competition. But it's easy to talk about and it's hard to do, isn't it? Even in the midst of my preparation for all this this week as I'm studying and thinking about all this stuff, Friday night, Peg and I have a, um, a discussion. You know? And actually it was a pretty mild kind of thing. But you know what I found myself, even, even knowing what I was going to talk about this morning, you know what I found myself doing? I had to treat, keep, as I often do, I had to keep driving the conversation until I was sure that she had gotten my point. So that in a sense, I could come out on top in the discussion. Now maybe that's never a struggle for you. But Paul says if we're going to stay in love, if we're going to love the way that Jesus did, then we've got to eliminate that kind of competition. We've got to quit trying to find our way into the winner's circle. Get rid of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, he doesn't finish there. He goes on to say some other things. If that's not enough for us, then he adds to it in the rest of verse 3. He says, But in humility, consider others better than yourself. He says, Value others more than you value yourself. In the way that you live and think and act and respond, you need to value the other person more than you value yourself. When was the last time you were at a uh, wedding? And I'm sure this happened at the wedding that you went to. You know, you, you go to the wedding, and what happens when the bride starts down the aisle? Everybody stands for her. And, uh, you know, it's interesting at a wedding, amazing thing, but they have the bride and the groom stand front and center as they share their vows. And sometime while you're at that event, if you go to the reception somewhere along the line, there's usually some kind of receiving line where all the attention, again, is on the bride and the groom and a chance for you to to greet them. Now, if you went to a wedding like that, and then can you imagine going home and saying after the wedding, you know that dumb wedding? They put all the attention on the bride and the groom. I can't believe they were front and center. And nobody stood for me when I walked into the room. And why didn't I get to have a receiving line? I mean, we wouldn't do that. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Why? Because we understand we are not the most important person in the room. Paul says, when it comes to your relationship with other people, you need to act and think and respond and live as if you understand you are not the most important person in the room. And that you are willing to value them more than you value yourself. Now how would that look? How would that look if your spouse treated you like you were most important and you treated your spouse at the same time like they were most important? I mean, how would that, how would that look? That, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? I want you to be materialistic for a second. And I want you to think of the thing that you own that you value the most. Do you have a picture of that? I thought about this this week for me. What, what is the thing that I own, the possession that I have that I value the most and for me, it's the big screen TV that somebody gave us a couple of years ago. I mean, I'm, I love that thing. It has a prominent place in the room. We give that thing a lot of attention every day. One of my chores around the house usually is to dust. And when I dust the living room, I am always sure to go over and dust off that TV. And you know what? When the bulb burned out a few months ago, Do you think we let that thing sit without a bulb for weeks on end? No way. We got that thing ordered right away. 
And I very carefully took out the old bulb and disposed of it and very carefully inserted that new bulb because that thing is of value to me. And Paul says, listen, get this. You ought to value the other person at least as much. You ought to treat them as well as you would treat your most valuable possession. And you know, when we hear that through the lens of marriage, that means Paul is saying to us, I ought to value my wife. You ought to value your husband at least as much, if not more than you value any other possession. And with the same kind of care and attention that you would give to that thing, how much more does your spouse deserve that kind of time and attention and care? You know what's interesting? If you think about it. And, and no eye contact here, no elbowing. Isn't that the way we all want to be treated? I mean, it's true, isn't it? Isn't that how you want to be treated? And if you want to stay in love, then you'll begin treating your spouse as if you value them more than you value yourself. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to a couple of other things. But before I do that, let me, let me insert two kind of footnotes here that I think are important to address over the spectrum of these two weeks. I think there are two, exception is too strong of a word, but I don't know what the better word is off the top of my head. There are two things that you need to be aware of that I don't think Paul's teaching here. Number one, if you are living in an abusive situation, if you are being physically or mentally abused by your spouse, Paul is not saying here, oh, just continue to be abused. Yeah, you're supposed to value yourself, them more than you. Just go on and let them sin against you. No, he's not saying that. If you are in an abusive situation, then you need to courageously get professional help today and get some professional help about how to deal with that situation and get out of it. Secondly, if your spouse is sinning against God by being unfaithful to you. They're having an affair with somebody else and they are unrepentant about it. It is repeated. It is ongoing. And they refuse to stop. Paul is not saying, oh, you value them more than yourself by saying, well, maybe I'm not meeting their needs or, you know, they need to get their needs met somewhere. No. They're involved in sin. And the Bible clearly teaches that you need to deal with that. And so again, I would say to you, you need to get help you need to get wise counsel. And you need to figure out how to confront them and deal with that situation. And possibly that marriage needs to end if they are unwilling to repent and to change their ways. So let's move on. Listen to what else Paul says in verse 4. He says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't focus exclusively on what interests you. You need to learn to focus on the interests of the other person. What is it that they're interested in? You know, and again, this isn't easy, is it? Because we have this tendency, it's more like us to want to focus on what we're interested in. The things that we like to do. The things that we enjoy. And Paul says, though, if you're really going to love like Jesus, you'll be interested in what the other person is interested in. During the last season of The Biggest Loser, my wife got interested in some of the final episodes and started uh, saving those on our, our DVR. Now, I'm not a fan at all or 
of The Biggest Loser. It's not a show I really want to sit and watch. And so there were numerous nights we'd sit down in front of the TV and we'd look at what we were going to watch and she'd say, why don't we watch The Biggest Loser? And I always did my best to think of a reason why not to watch The Biggest Loser. Fortunately, Matt was home most of the time and we outnumbered her two to one. I didn't want to watch that because I wasn't interested in it. And you know what, finally, uh, we weren't home one, I mean, Matt and I weren't there one night, so she started watching and I came home and finished watching it with her. Well, it wasn't so bad. And you know what, I, I have a lot bigger failures than that. I'm just not secure enough to tell you about those. And maybe you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's just a show. But here's the point. If I, it, I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to be interested in what she was interested in, whether or not I was going to put her interests ahead of my own interests. And you know, we're we're all faced with those decision-making times where we have to choose. And, And that's what it is. It's a choice. I have to choose to put their interests ahead of my own interests. Now let me give you some gauges as I wrap up this morning. Let me give you some gauges that you could use every day to kind of judge how you're doing at putting the other person first, whether or not you're putting their interests first, whether or not you're serving them. Three gauges that we could use. The first are daily words of gratitude. Daily words of gratitude. You know know what? We have a tendency not to say thank you for the daily routine things. We aren't likely to say thank you for things that we expect somebody else to do. And so here's a question to ask yourself. How often do you say thank you for the daily routine things of life? If you don't say thank you, then you're just expecting them to do that. Let me give you some examples. If you come home and your spouse has taken time to clean the house, first suggestion I would give you is to actually notice. Which sometimes I don't always. But notice. But do you say thank you? Or do you just expect them to do that? You know, you need to come home and admire what they've done and say thanks. You know what? I really appreciate that. It makes me feel at home. I feel comfortable when you take time to invest in cleaning. Or maybe you come home and you notice that your spouse has been out working in the yard and they have mowed and edged and weeds and all that kind of stuff. You need to say thank you. Thanks for investing like that. Thanks for spending all those hours out there sweating and doing that. Maybe your spouse gasses up your car for you while they have it out. When they bring it back, notice it. Say thank you. You didn't have to do that. When your spouse has spent the day caring for your children, don't come home and just you know, complain about everything else. Appreciate. Say thank you. Thanks for in, investing and caring for our children that way. Thanks for doing what is much harder probably than being out working at another job. Thank you. Thank you for loving our children like that. And you can fill in the blank with your own thing. What is it that you need to come home and say thank you for? The second gauge that you could use to sort of see how you're doing at this are daily acts of service. So let me ask you, when you see something around the house that is undone, that your spouse normally does, do you just sort of automatically think, well, she'll do it, he'll do it, because they always do, and then you just walk away? I mean, if that's the case, it might be an indication that you have slipped over into some, some vain conceit. You're not putting their interests 
ahead of your own. I mean, if you, if you make the incredibly huge effort, I know, to pick up your dishes in the living room and make that forever trip into the kitchen and you get there and notice that the dishes are piled up in the sink, but you, because you care, very carefully place yours on top so that it doesn't knock the stack of dishes over and then walk away, you may have missed it, but you, you came to a fork in the road there, pun intended. You came to a fork in the road for a decision there. The decision between serving the one you love and vain conceit. Which are you going to choose? The third gauge that you can use to see how well you're doing is a daily awareness of God's love for me. You see, I think there is a direct correlation between how much we recognize the depth of God's love for us and our ability to love others. There is a direct correlation between the way that I receive God's love into my life and my ability to dispense His love to other people. And so that's how Paul wraps up these verses that we're looking at by reminding us exactly how it is that Jesus loves us. He says this in verse 5, Your attitude, that's us, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was dwelling in heaven. He was ruling over the universe as God. But verse 7, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He left the glory of heaven to come here to earth. He wrapped His heavenly body in human flesh. He became a man. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? He loves you enough to go to the cross because of all the wrong, all the sin that you've done in your life. Jesus, who committed no sin, loved you enough that He endured the pain of the cross and it was excruciating. He endured it for you. That's how He loves you. And do you notice something about Jesus? He does not carry around a box of expectations. His love for us is not dependent on us meeting His expectations. He loves us in spite of the fact that we probably don't meet His expectations. He loves us in spite of what we do or don't do. And so if I'm going to love the way that Jesus loves, if I'm going to love my wife the way that Jesus loves, then it is not a love based on whether or not she meets my expectations. It's about me choosing to love her every day. Just for who she is. That's the way that God loves you. Some of you in this room this morning, the first step to really putting your marriage on the healing road is that you need to accept God's love for you. You need to accept Jesus' gift of salvation. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to accept His gift of grace. Welcome His forgiveness. And let His love wash over you. And once you have experienced His love, then daily you need to be reminded how much He loves you so that you can love others in the same way. Let's pray together.
God, thank you for loving me. With a love that I don't deserve. God, I thank you that your love doesn't depend on whether or not I meet your expectations. God, I pray this morning that you would help me to love my wife that way. And God, I pray for every person in this room that you'd help them to love their spouse and to love other people with the same kind of love that you have loved us. God, help us to stay in love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.